Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Today I want to talk to you about something you don't hear talked about often, but it's it's been on my heart much. And really following the week of power, uh, I just began to think a lot about this because I think this is something that the Lord wants to do in our lives individually and will ultimately do as we walk through this move of God in the weeks and months to come that he will do corporately. I want to talk to you about the fear of God. We live in a day where you don't hear much about the fear of God, a day where Christianity is often lived out almost, if you will, in an obedience-optional manner, where if a person feels like doing something, they're going to do it. And if it's sinful, they think, well, you know, God understands. It's no big deal. After all, we're under grace. I can repent over it. And some people essentially just learn to live with their sin. For others, it's, it's just how you roll and there are excuses along the way. Well, you know, my family has uh, always had this. It just runs in the family line. Or, or there is the idea that somehow some sin isn't bad. It's not great, but it's not bad, and so people tolerate it. Can I just say that if that is your approach to your walk with God, the problem with that is, at the very least, it creates a distance between you and the Lord. At the worst, you may actually be in a situation where you think you are a Christian, but in the end, you will tragically find out that you knew God, but he didn't know you. Understanding the fear of God is important for two reasons. First of all, your salvation and your sanctification depend on it. In fact, sanctification, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to conform us to the image of Christ, is really motivated by, on our part, a fear of God. The second reason why I think it's important in our setting is because one of the things that will happen in a move of God is that at some point, a fear of God will descend on the people in that place because of his presence and their proximity to God. In other words, his presence becomes so real and he is so close that people are in that moment instantly made aware of their own sinfulness. And that changes them permanently. We don't have time to describe all of the things in history, but if you go back and read about the revivals that have happened in the past, you will find examples where the fear of God would come down on a place and conviction would set in. What is conviction? People aware of who God is and their sinfulness. Charles Finney 
he would, he would send his, his friend who would go into the town beforehand, and he would pray, and when Finney would come, the, the fear of God would settle on that town, and people would be converted. John, Jonathan Edwards, in the first great awakening in the 1740s in Northampton, Massachusetts, gave a message that ushered in an awakening that shook America at that time. His concern was that he would preach a sermon that would, because of his intonation and his voice inflection, would elicit an emotional response. And he so feared an emotional response on the part of the people that he, he actually practiced giving the message in as much of a monotone voice as he could. The result was that as he gave that message, the message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people in this little church in Northampton were grabbing onto the pews for fear they would fall into hell in that moment. Something about coming into the presence of a holy God that makes us aware of who we are, what we are, and who he is, and what he is. You see examples of this, both in the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we read in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, says Isaiah writing, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he has his vision of the Lord, and this is Jesus. John tells us this is Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory, surrounded by angelic beings who are crying out. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. These are guardian, some theologians say serpent-like angelic beings, who their job is to guard the throne. Come near the throne, that take you out. And as they're guarding the throne, they are worshiping 24-7, 365 days a year, forever and ever. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So it's like there is this earthquake that is happening in that moment as they're worshiping him. And what's Isaiah's response to this in verse 5? Woe to me! What, what he's saying is, I'm damned! I'm eternally ruined! I'm destroyed! Why, Isaiah, why are you saying that? For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So when you have proximity to God, instantly you become aware of who he is and who you are. This is a prophet, but he's a human. And instantly, what does he say his problem is? I've got a problem with profanity. Instantly, in the presence of God, he knows. And then watch what happens. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth. 
One of the questions I'm going to ask Isaiah is, did it hurt? <laughs> did it burn? See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins atoned for. You see, the dealing with our sin in that moment is what happens when God comes down. And there's nobody who's able to say, well, you know, I'm perfect. I don't have any sin. I don't have to worry about that. Because we're all human, and hopefully as we go through life, we become more and more like Jesus, and our sin is less and less obvious, but there's nobody who is so perfect that when exposed to the presence of the Lord, they would not in that moment be made aware of something about their life or even just their nature, their sinful human nature, that would cause them to feel a holy terror. What happens in that moment, and this is beautiful, is it transforms a person. See, some people, as I'm talking about, they say, well, I don't ever want that. No, you do want it. Because what happens in that moment is the, your apprehension of God becomes a comprehension of who he is and become, leads to a transformation of who you are. Because all of a sudden, I mean, watch what happens here. This is very, very interesting. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, I'll go. It changes him. You see the same thing in the Gospels in Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, it's the story of Peter and and Peter is fishing. He's been up all night. He's now washing his nets. They caught nothing. Jesus is teaching on the shore. The crowd's pressing in. So Jesus gets in Peter's boat. He says, would you push out from the shore? Because the crowds keep trying to get to him. And so he is teaching at the end of his ministry uh, to the crowds. He says to Peter, go out a little deeper. And they go out deeper. And now he says, drop your nets. And Peter says, you know what? We fish all night and haven't caught a thing. But because you say so, I will do it. At that moment, what happens is the water begins to stir and, and teem with fish. And we read this, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. No one told him he was a sinner. There was, there's no record of rebukes. There is no record of sermons. Just good fishing. Some of you, if you had a good day fishing, you might really feel like you were in the presence of the Lord at that moment. For Peter... He's never the same again. He instantly realizes who Jesus is, and he realizes who he is, and he's in proximity to him, and now he shrinks back, and he says, depart from me. I, I, I can't take this. You're holy, and I'm not. There's something that happens in that experience, that encounter with God, and every single one of us should desire to have those moments in his presence where he so reveals himself and he is so close to us that it leaves us different than we were before that moment. You say, how do you know he's different? Well, look what happens. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. That's it. Change of, change of direction in his life. The big picture is that when God shows up and when we have his presence and, and a proximity to him, what happens is it transforms us. 
But there is also, in our own Christian development, the necessity of developing a fear of God that I think has come on hard times in much of the Christian community today. So that for some Christians, there's very little fear at all. In fact, some refuse to accept the idea that there should be a fear of God. People misquote the scripture and they'll say, well, you know, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear, so we shouldn't fear God. That's not true, and that's a misinterpretation of that text. The fear being talked about there is not the fear of God, but the fear of absolutely everything else. Perfect love would never cause you not to fear God. It would only cause you to fear him more because you would know who he is. As followers of Jesus, then, we should have a fear of God because the danger is that if you only, if you become overly familiar with God and you are a friend of God, which is good, on the other hand, you have to never lose sight of who he is and who you are in relationship to him. Because if you lose sight of that, then what happens is you begin to trade on that relationship and you begin to think that because you're close to him, you get a pass on certain things. Let me see if I can help you understand the fear of God by looking at some scriptures. And this is really, um, as, I, as I walk through this and think about it, really I'm going to give you about half of what could be said and we may next week uh, finish uh, I'm going to give you three ways to cultivate the fear of God, and there are three more that I would add to this, but won't have time tonight. Let's start, because I know there are some of you, and, and you came out of, out of backgrounds where God was presented as an ogre, and he was presented as out to get you, and lest you think that's what I'm talking about, that is not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is how you and I not only reverence God, but actually fear him, which is a healthy thing for every single believer. And I fear that in the church today, what's happened is a lot of pastors are hesitant to talk about the fear of God, lest people misunderstand them, lest people say, well, I don't want to serve a God that I have to be afraid of. And so what they do is they couch it in terms of reverence, and, and that's not accurate to the text. Jesus, let's start there, Luke chapter 12, verse 4. This is Jesus talking. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. So don't be afraid of people. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body, so after you die, however you die, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus knew the Father very, very well. And he said, you better, be, you better fear him. You better have that. What's interesting in all of this is, you know, and people want to say, well, you know, we're talking about reverence, but the word fear there is a word we all, we all understand. We get our word phobia from it. It's phobeo. And the word means frightened, alarmed, exceedingly fearful, 
or afraid. That's in the Greek lectionary. That's the way the Greeks would have understood it. Uh, today, it would be defined as an irrational fear. Let me tell you what. The fear of God is, there's nothing irrational about it. But we're not talking about reverence. We're talking about a holy terror. Where you say, he is so awesome, so mighty, so exceedingly powerful, so holy that I must obey him. A lot of people struggle with sin because they don't have a holy fear of God. They don't, they don't have a well-developed concept of this, and so consequently, they feel that they sin with impunity because, hey, Jesus paid it all and it doesn't matter, and they're going to wake up one day and find out that they're not in heaven. The context for these verses on fear, incidentally, is relative to our relationship with the Father, and it's very loving. Look at this. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're more, so you're saying, well, don't be afraid of what? You don't have to fear anything in life as long as you fear the Father. He's taking care of you, and he loves you more than you can imagine. You see, here's the thing you have to understand. Every great theological truth is built on this paradox that exists in the truth. There's a tension in every truth. Is the incarnation, is Jesus 100% God or 100% man? He's both. How can he be both? Well, he is. Did people write the Bible or did God write the Bible? Both. Well, how can it be both? Well, it is. The Holy Spirit inspired people. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Did God choose me or did I choose him? Both. He chose you and you chose him. So I'm uncomfortable about God choosing people. Well, you don't have to be. As long as you choose him, it all works out real good. Anybody who says, well, I don't know. If, what if God doesn't choose me? Don't worry about that. You just choose him and you'll be in good shape. Right? See, there's that tension there. You know, so the same is true here. He loves you. And he calls you his child. And we relate to him as a loving heavenly father. And yet we also know who he is. And he is the sovereign almighty God, the king of the universe, known and unknown, the king of all eternity. And he is fearsome. And he is holy. And we get a picture of that when those angels are standing around and angels who have been there long before we were around are crying out continually, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You say, well, don't they ever get bored? Which simply betrays our ignorance regarding who God is because one second in his presence, you would say, oh man, he deserves that and more. So there is this sense of love and yet that does not preclude the cultivation of a holy fear. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home, in the body, or away from it. So Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm all about living for Jesus. Why? For we must all before the, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, someday I'm going to give an account. And I'm going to stand before the one whose eyes burn with fire. And no amount of salesmanship 
on my part, your part, or Paul's part is going to sway the judge from seeing right through you, right through me, to the core of what we did and why we did it. He'll, he'll judge the motives. You and I can't judge one another's motives. He can instantly because he sees the heart. Paul says that each one might receive what is due him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Paul says, I fear God. Does he love God? Has he been caught up into the third heaven? Has he, has he been taught the gospel by the Lord Jesus? Has Jesus personally appeared to him? Yes, and yet he also understands that while he is a friend of God and a child of God, he serves a God with holy fear. And the two do not preclude one another. They exist perfectly within God's plan and when you experience it, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. In fact, if you doubt this whole experience I'm talking about, it's because you haven't experienced it. Because if you experience the fear of God, you know it does nothing to diminish your understanding of the love of God. In fact, I would suggest to you that when you have a proper understanding of the fear of God and experience of that fear, it only enhances your experience of his love. So anybody who tells you, well, I don't buy that, I don't, well, that just means they've never experienced it. If they had, they would know that this is real, this is true, and this is right. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, what is he talking about there? Salvation. The rest, we're at peace with God. We don't have to work our way to God. We're saved. Since we have the promise of salvation, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In other words, what he's saying is, you, you want to have a healthy fear of God that would say, if I have the root of salvation, I ought to have the fruit of salvation. Paul says, test yourself, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. If your life doesn't look like a Christian's life, then you're probably not a Christian. No matter what you say. If you're saved and you know it, the child song says, then your life should surely show it. If there's no fruit in your life, it's because there's no root in your life. It doesn't matter what you, what you affirm mentally in your life. And this is what he's saying. Listen, make sure... Don't miss salvation and have that holy fear that says, I, I want my life to back up what God has done in my heart. I want it to be obvious to the world around me, and I want it to be obvious to myself. We walk with the fear of God. Do you realize Jesus walked with the fear of God? This is another thing that people don't understand. You say, well, he and the Father, they're one, and he's co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with God, so I mean, they're, they're on the same level, but he became a man, and as a man, he lived as a man, he followed God as a man, he was 100% man, he was 100% deity, but as 100% man, he lived with the fear of God. You say, where do you find that? Glad you asked, Hebrews 5.7 who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications 
with vehement cries and tears. How did Jesus pray? He cried a lot. Loud cries is what the NIV says. Loud cries and tears. He prayed out loud. He poured out his heart to the Father, to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. This word's only used twice in the New Testament, both times in the book of Hebrews, and it's eulabia is the word. It means because of his piety. In other words, if you have a godly fear on the inside, you'll have a godly life on the outside. And if you don't have a godly life on the outside, it's because you do not have a godly fear on the inside, no matter what you see. Your life, your life betrays your heart. If you're comfortable with sin, if you don't care what the Bible says, if you're not willing to obey God, it's because you don't have a godly fear. And to the degree you know God is the degree you'll live for God. So if you're not living for God, then you have to wonder if you know him. In this sense, a godly fear is the cultivation of a healthy understanding of who God is that motivates us to live a holy life for him. Hebrews chapter 12, same word, eulabia. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we're going to be going to heaven, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, with piety, with a holy life, with, with a fear of God that leads to holy living is the idea. Eulabia could be defined this way, piety, reverence, by implication, dread. It's a strong word. It's the idea of, of just this, I don't want to displease God. That ought to be the heart of every child of God. I want to live for him. I want to do my best for him. I, I want to love him. I want to be more like Jesus day by day. I don't want things in my life that move me away from him. I don't want things in my life that diminish my appetite for him. I don't want things in my life that make me less like him. So how do we live in a godly fear? Well, go back to Hebrews 12 because this is, for our God is a consuming fire. This, this is all imagery designed to help us realize who he is. I mean, honestly, this all takes us back to Mount Sinai when God comes down on the mountain and the mountain shakes and there's black smoke billowing up and, and there's trumpets sounding and there's thunder and Moses looks at it and you can read it in Hebrews later tonight and he says, I'm trembling with fear. Moses looks at it, he's terrified because to come close to a holy, living God who is consuming fire is a terrifying thing. And yet you have Moses talking face to face with the Lord as a man talks with his friends. So you have this, you have this paradox, you have this juxtaposition, friendship with God and fear of God. They go together. They don't exclude one another. They embrace one another. How do we live in godly fear? Let me move along quickly here. Number one, I'm going to give you three things. Repent of those things that are displeasing to God and do whatever is necessary to stop doing them. So repentance is not, oh God, I'm sorry, I, I did it again. That's not repentance. Repentance is, 
I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing it. You say, well, can a person really do that? When you have a fear of God, it'll really motivate you. Jesus offers this, and this is when he talks to them and he says, you know, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom. So that's the context of this. But then look what he says. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. So he's saying the world is full of things that cause you and I to sin. Such things must come. In other words, it's just part of living in life. You're going to have temptation. You're going to have peer pressure. You're going to have, you're going to have things that, you know, the world's throwing at you in a variety of ways. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. In other words, if it's, if it's coming into your life, that's not good. The world's tempting you to sin. The, the world's tempting you to do the things it would cause you to do, to please your, your flesh, to, to live with pride. You know, pride's become a virtue. It's the first of seven things God hates, but in our day, pride's a virtue. Our world has literally turned everything on its head. What used to be sin is now good, and what used to be good virtue is now viewed as something that means you're crazy or a bigot. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. This is Jesus. And he says it here and he says it again in Mark's gospel. I mean, what he's saying is, whatever you got to do to stop your sin, do it. There's some of you, and you're messing around with pornography, and you can't stop if you would, but you won't. You say, how would I stop it? Give somebody who loves God your phone and let them shut it down in terms of what you can watch. Let them put it on a strict. Give your wife your password to your computer and let her Determine what's going to come up on that screen. Tell your employer you're looking at pornography on the clock and see how you can get that stopped. You say, that's pretty severe. Not as severe as cutting off your hand. I'm being very gentle with you. Compared to Jesus. Listen. To put up with sin continually in your life is to completely misunderstand the deadly nature of sin. The Puritan writers understood it. John Owen, the Puritan, said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, said this, sin is your murderer. Kill it before it kills you. It will kill you. It will take you out. Number two. Cultivate a fear of God in your life. Say, God, give, give me a holy fear for you. 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, now that you're saved, you're different. If you got saved and nobody knows the difference and nobody sees the difference, it's because you're not saved. You say, man, you're... you're making people doubt their salvation. Listen, if there's no fruit, there's no root. Quit kidding yourself. 
because you think you're going to heaven and you're not. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Everything. Holy, set apart, different. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. He's holy, so we should be holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. I took reverent out because it's not in the Greek text. Live your life in fear, godly fear. You say, how does that work? Let me put it this way. If Jesus wouldn't watch it, you shouldn't watch it. If Jesus wouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it. If Jesus wouldn't go there, you shouldn't go there. If you had Jesus with you, would you still be looking at it, still be talking about it, still be doing it? If you had Jesus standing right beside you, how would you talk to people? What would you say about other people if Jesus was right there? That's, that's how this works. Jesus is right there. He is with you. The Holy Spirit's right there. Live like it is what Peter is saying. Number three, recognize the damnable consequence of living a spiritually careless life. This is the thing that I think is, is listen, hey, we did Romans for a long time. And I believe in grace and I'm thankful for God's grace. And we're a grace-filled church. But grace does not preclude holiness. And grace doesn't mean there's no consequence. And grace doesn't mean just do what you want. Paul said, shall we go on sending that grace might increase? Heaven forbid. People were saying, well, he's talking about grace so much. It means it sounds like we can just sin. And no, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So let's understand there's grace, but grace, though it covers our sin, doesn't give you impunity from sin. If you keep living in it, then you have to wonder if you really died to it. If it doesn't bother you, something's wrong. Once again, listen to the words of Jesus. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Okay, so you say, well, I love Jesus, and I'm, you know, I love him, and that's all I know. I love him. Well, great. You're saying, Lord, Lord. But the question Jesus has for you is, are you doing the will of the Father, or are you ignoring it? Because if you're ignoring it, then you have to say, uh-oh, something's wrong here because I'm ignoring God's will. And if I'm ignoring God's will, Jesus says, you're not going to have, don't look at me. Don't shoot the messenger. He's the one who said it. So let's get, let's get down to brass tacks here. Jesus says, be baptized. Some of you have decided, I don't feel like it. I don't think it's that big a deal and I don't want to. Honestly, you got to come to terms with that in your life. How can you say you have a holy fear of God when God has asked you to do something and you, it's the most basic thing a Christian could ever do? It doesn't get any more basic than that. And you're saying, I'm not going to do it. You have to wonder, are you really going to heaven? 
And if you're saying no to God on that level, then how many other things in your life are you saying no to? And how can you then, with a straight face, say, no, I'm doing the will of God. And if you're not doing the will of God, you're not going to heaven. And you think you are, which is tragic. And the rapture's going to come, and everybody else going to be gone. You're going to be here. You think it was hard to live for Jesus now, it's going to be really, really hard then, unspeakably hard. Or, worse yet, that would be the best case scenario for you outside of repenting now. Worse yet, you think you're going to heaven because I love God, but you don't do the will of God. And then you get to heaven and find out the door's closed. The, the verses that precede, enter through the narrow way. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. Broad is the path that leads to, really a lot of people on the broad path going to an eternal darkness. And the sad thing is a lot of them don't know it because they've been taught somehow that, that you know, a relationship with God is like fire insurance, you have it in case the house burns down so they can rebuild it, but it doesn't really do much else for your life. And that's not true. A relationship with God changes your life, or you really didn't have a relationship with God. Straight up, that's it. On Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Cast out demons in your name. Perform many miracles in your name. Now listen. Some people use that to somehow say miracles aren't for today, which is really a complete absence of hermeneutic principle and interpretation. Jesus is saying people who didn't have a relationship with him in his name actually did miracles. So if people who don't have a relationship with him in his name can do miracles, how much more should people who do have a relationship with him be able to do miracles in his name? Are you with me? This doesn't prove the miracles don't happen, it proves that they really do, because even people that don't know the Lord in his name can do things. That's what he's saying. So they're coming and they're saying, Lord, Lord, we did. We prophesied, we cast out demons, we healed the sick, we did all this. Watch what happens here. But I'll reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. You who break God's laws. You didn't want to live for him in this life. Why would you want to be in heaven in the next life? You didn't like God's laws here. Hey, let, let me tell you what. In heaven, it's all God's laws. There's no votes. There's no like, how many are in favor of, there's none of that. He's the king. He makes the rules. It's wonderful. But if you don't like his law here, you will not like it in heaven. So you won't be there. He'll save you the trouble. I mean, this is, I'm trying to paint this in as stark a manner as I can because some of you need to hear this. It's possible for you to think you know God and for him not to know you because your life was simply a pattern of tolerated sin and sinfulness. And the glory departed long ago he came close to you 
and you saw him and you were moving towards him, but you thought somehow the feeling inside and just the sympathy in your heart towards the things of the gospel was enough to call yourself a Christian. Yeah, I don't go into all, I'm not, I'm not gonna get on, I'm not gonna be one of those you know, radical people. And you've created your own religion, which will never get you to heaven. And you know him, but he just simply doesn't know you. He, that's what he says. You, you break, if you break God's laws, let me put it this way. If you break God's laws and that doesn't bother you, it's because you don't know him. Because if you break God's laws, it should break your heart. It should bother you so much if you've grieved the Holy Spirit and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. What's he talking about? Bitterness and anger and slander. It should break your heart if you break his heart. But if it doesn't, then can I just say, you're either A, not a Christian, or you are a Christian who is so far out there that I, can, I, don't, even, I don't even know whether you are a Christian. And I can't see your heart, but I'm just telling you, you're going to have to come up with something that will counteract every single scripture I've just read, and you can't do it. Because I, I don't have time to put everything on the screen that you need to hear. And it's a frightening reality. Jesus said, I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear him. And when you love him and you know him, you understand. He is a, he's a consuming fire. But the, the paradox is somehow the fear of God and the love of God come together in a beautiful, beautiful combination that will thrill your soul.